Welcome everyone to episode 100, State of CIRM. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is the Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, this is a big episode, a major milestone. Number 100. We made it a century, Dalen. Isn't that amazing? So cool. I mean, we didn't. We did some of it. We did some of it. We got to give our ups to all the people who made it happen from the start, right? And who else, Keith? That's right. We have some thank yous for everyone. Thank you to you, the listeners who have been listening to this program before us and while Dalen and I have been here telling you all about the stem cell world and science world out there. You've been tuning in every other week, every two weeks to get your stem cell news, your interviews from us. And without you, it would be kind of boring. We would be just talking to ourselves. Be like, Dalen, what are we doing here? <laughs> so thank you, all of you, you who are listening right now. Thank you for supporting us and thank you to, for continuing to listen to us. Also, a big thank you to Stem Cell Technologies who recognized the tremendous educational value of the Stem Cell Podcast and committed to keep the show on the air for years to come. And Dalen, thank you for being my stem cell partner in crime. This is super fun. I have a lot of fun doing this every other week. Well, you're welcome, Kiki. And I'd like to say you're welcome to all the people out there, too. Your gratitude is felt every day. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, Kiki, and everyone else who you just mentioned, listeners most of all. This has been a lot of fun, and we want to keep it going. So let's keep it going, Kiki. I know. Oh, and quickly, to Chris and Anthony Fasano for getting this show started and That's for bringing us in. They're right? like the Wachowski brothers. Yes. Except they didn't have the trans thing happen. That didn't I happen. don't think. No. <laughs> but it is time for us to move forward, get into the stem cell business. Make sure everyone out there, you check us out at stemcellpodcast.com, where you can not only subscribe to our newsletter, you'll also be able to find all of our past episodes and other great resources. You can follow us on social media as well at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher so that you can get those new episodes automatically downloaded to your phone. And for our 100th episode today, we will be talking to Mr. Kevin McCormick from the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, or CIRM, or should it be CIRM since it's California? I know, it just sounds better, CIRM, yes. We're gonna talk about all of CIRM's progress, its past, present, and future. CIRM was created in 2004 to translate stem cell discoveries into therapies. And we're going to talk to Kevin about the progress this funding has made. But before we do that, let's round it up. You ready, Dalen? Yeah, I'm ready. Today, we're going to cut the round up in half so we can talk a lot, a lot with Dr. Kevin McCormick. But before we even get into that diminished roundup, not diminished. It's not it. diminished. It's, it's not diminished. It's abbreviated. Truncated. <laughs> Before we get truncated, Stem Cell Technologies would like to remind our listeners that we want to know what you think about our podcast. Please go to our website, stemcellpodcast.com, and click on the picture of the Starbucks mug to take our two-minute survey to let us know how we're doing and what we can do to improve the show. You can also enter to win a $10 Starbucks card 
I mean, it doesn't sound like a lot of money, but we've all been there. $10 can get you through that next experiment when you get the quadruple <laughs> latte. Yeah. So let's, let's, you know, let's get over there. Let's sign up, take a survey, make the podcast better. All right. But uh, now let's round it up. Let's round it up. All right. So I'm going to dive right in. You know what's happening right now across the Northern Hemisphere? I'm on the West Coast, which is on fire. <laughs> the sky outside is orange. <laughs> there's, it, there's just fire everywhere on the West Coast. Houston flooded. Giant hurricanes are hitting the landmass. We've got Hurricane Irma showing up off of off of the south. It's uh, threatening Puerto Rico. It's already hit the Caribbean. It's threatening also southern Florida. And beyond that, there is a tropical storm, Jose, which has also formed. Maybe it won't be as strong as Irma. Maybe Irma will steal his thunder. That Jose, we don't know, but it's there. And so the automatic reaction that you hear people coming into conversation with, there are two. The first is Climate change, Hurricane Harvey's, that was specifically caused by climate change. Hurricane Irma, strongest hurricane because of climate change. The Eagle Creek fire in Oregon, in the Columbia River Gorge, climate change. And then you have the other side where people say, it's not climate change. All you people with your liberal bias and everything you're trying to make. This is Rush Limbaugh, by the way, saying that the liberal media conspiracy is trying to make people buy batteries <laughs> because the hurricane's in cahoots with the battery manufacturers. I don't know. And so there are these just instinctual gut reactions that people have. And what is actually going on? Daylin, what's really going on? No, actually, I... I have an idea. I don't have the answer. It's not good, though. Please. It's not really great, but maybe we should be starting to talk more about the influence of climate change on the intensity of storms like Harvey and Irma, and also the probability of fires starting along the western United States where it's dry. The reaction that we should have is the logical, rational reaction of any one storm, any one fire is not caused specifically by climate change. However, data that is building up over years of observations is showing us that there is a growing connection between the probability of storms of increased intensity, probability of larger and longer duration fires burning in the western United States as a result of the changing climate. Hurricanes feed off warm water. Climate change is increasing air and water temperatures as those increase because it's a heat engine, right? Hotter water, more water vapor, more rain, more energy in the storm is going to potentially lead to lots, well, maybe not lots more, but just an increased intensity in any one storm that happens. And maybe if they do hit landfall, according to Michael Mann, we're getting these troughs in the jet stream where the jet stream got right now, it's pushed way northward. And so it, and it's stuck, it's stalled out. And so for several days, we have these storms that stick in one place as opposed to that more easier movement away from land. The jet stream wasn't there to push Hurricane Harvey away from shore. 
So these are all predicted by models of how climate is going to affect North America, the Atlantic, over the future. Things are happening. There's also more storm surge, right? You have these more intense storms with more storm surge. And if you have higher sea levels as a result of melting from ice caps, there will be more flooding. And then again, there's, you know, the lack of a human reaction where we've been developing Houston. There's been a lack of regulation in that area that's led to subsistence. The, the land has been subsiding. <laughs> <laughs> there's been an actual decrease in the height of the land, which increased the probability of flooding. So there are all sorts of things that feed together. And so we need to start having this conversation as a, all right, no, the reaction of this is climate change. That's not actually right. But the this is not climate change is not right either. Yeah, you know what's crazy to me? The idea that it's too soon. It's too soon. Like, oh, there's people. We haven't even gone and look and there might be dead people and blah, blah, blah. Let's just cool it. Let's just cool it. Be sensitive to sensitive to who? Do you think these people who are displaced are going to get upset if we identify the culprit as climate change? I just don't understand some of the logic of these people. Let's acknowledge that the problem is real, number one. I don't know why we're still trying to convince people. And then let's move forward and do something and take a little less. Stop giving the earth a haircut, for Christ's sake. <laughs> and accept that there's a lot of blame that falls squarely on human shoulders. Like we've done things, you know, we are affecting our environment. We are developing, we are putting things into the air. We are doing things that are having an effect. And we need to take that responsibility and act on it. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath. We can change our future behavior. We can do it. I wish we could. I somehow, somehow I feel like we're not going to. It's not too early. You know what we're going to do? We're going to do it because like there's alternatives. No one's going to sacrifice anything. We're all going to say, oh, it's easy to use solar, so we don't have to worry about that whole climate change thing. Mark my words, Kiki. Hmm. We're lazy. We're lazy as Americans in particular. Yeah, well, I hope, I hope that we will grow and be industrious and let's fight for a better world for all of us. Let's do it. We can do this. It's possible. Yeah. No heads in the sand. Let's fix it. We have a lot of smart people out there. We can do it. We can do it. And you know what other smart people are doing? They're trying to figure out how to make a better flu vaccine. Mm. Yeah, right? because we know the one that they have just doesn't work at all. In fact, I think it gives you the flu. It does not. <laughs> Spreading fake news right there. It doesn't give you the flu. But yeah, people's responses to the flu vaccine could be better. Some people respond really great to flu vaccines. Other people do not respond as well. So researchers have been interested in what it is that makes some people better responders to the vaccine. So researchers, let's see, where are they? At Stanford University School of Medicine, they're computational immunologists published in Science Immunology on their study looking at genes that were highly active before vaccination to see whether there were any that particularly generated a high level of antibodies after the vaccination. And so the idea is that if you could have a predictive set of active genes, you'll be able to tailor vaccination 
to people better. Or maybe we'll be able to create a better vaccine because it'll be able to upregulate certain genes that are necessary in that pathway of the immune response. So Pravesh Khatri from Stanford University School of Medicine and his colleagues wondered if there's a certain immune state that individuals need to be in to respond effectively to the flu vaccine. And they looked for this genetic signal, this commonality in blood samples from 175 people with different genetic backgrounds from different locations in the United States who also received the vaccine for the flu in different seasons. And then they identified a particular set of genes that predicted a positive response to the vaccine, and then tested that against another collection of 82 different samples to see if they correlated and predicted a strong flu response. And in fact, it did. And they found that there are nine genes that make proteins with various jobs. Some are involved in directing the movement of other proteins and providing structure to cells. And some previous research on the genes hasn't really even tied them to the immune system in some cases. And so now they're going, okay, we've got these, these genes. Maybe now we can investigate how they together promote the successful response to the vaccine and also how to boost it in individuals who don't have strong responses. But he, the researchers say there is still a long way to go here. They're just at the very beginning of this investigation. Hmm. So what you're saying is the flu vaccine is still going to give you the flu for a little while. Tell me honestly, do you take the flu vaccine? Do you take it every year? I do. You take it every year? I do. Swear? You swear. When I was younger and I thought I was healthy and impervious to anything, I did not get the flu vaccine as often. But since having my son, I get the flu vaccine every year. Good for you. They make me do it because I work in a hospital. Exactly. I'm, I want to protect others around me. I'm the only one who gets sick. I'm the only one in the whole family that gets sick. I'm the only one. Every year. And you know what? It's probably not the flu. It's just a cold. <laughs> oh, maybe. For my weak immune system. This could be a lot of things. I'm, I'm troubled, Kiki. That's for sure. All right. Well, that was abbreviated general news roundup. And I'm going to get into a... Uh, abbreviated stem cell roundup. Abbreviated stem cell roundup. That can yes. maybe, are you going to make me happy? I'm going to make things. you, I'm going to blow your brains out right now. <laughs> okay, okay? Let's do it. <laughs> Not literally, but maybe metaphorically. I got two neural stories here. The first one, I just have to say that it's something that we predicted, not like we're geniuses, but you can just count on scientists to take a bad thing and turn it into a good thing. And we talked about this on a couple shows. I can't remember who the guests were. It wasn't even our idea. One of the guests mentioned it and it blew my mind. And now I'm here to tell you that the future has, you know, pretty much come true as we predicted it would. Zika. This is a good Zika story. You ready? This, oh. Wait, you said good and Zika in the same sentence. Oh, gosh. Yes. We're going to do it for you, girl. Zika, you know, the damaging neurological effects of Zika. Uh, and we talked about this. You can enlist those damaging effects or at least the tropism that Zika has for neural stem cells to have a delivery of a toxic payload to glioblastoma. Can you believe it? All right, they're doing it. This is in, in human cells and mice. The Zika virus was able to infect and kill the cancer stem cells that become glioblastoma. This is 
Jeremy Rich, clearly a listener to the show. He scooped us. He's at UCSD. Him and colleagues report these findings in Journal of Experimental Medicine. So previous studies, uh, to be fair, have shown that Zika virus kills the cells that generate nerve cells in developing brains. There's all these raft of studies that kind of led to this idea, trying to understand the pathology of the virus and the disease caused by it. And because those neural-like stem cells or nerve cells are so similar to the neural precursor cells that turn into glioblastoma, Rich's team suspected the virus might also be used to target these cells, which cause this deadly type of cancer. So in, in the U.S., about 12,000 people are diagnosed with glioblastoma. That's expected to be diagnosed this year. And even with treatment, most of these patients only live a year and the tumors frequently recur. And when you think about these recurrence and the you know, resistance to treatment, what you're often worried about is these cancer stem cells. They just persist, persist, and renew the whole tumor. So in cultures of human cells, Zika infected glioblastoma stem cells. It infected the, the cells and halted the growth. And it could also infect these full-blown Zika-infected mice, mice that were fully blown with glioblastoma growing. If you put the Zika in there, they get infected, the tumors would shrink or the tumor growth would slow compared to uninfected mice. And this led to longer lifespan in these mice. And to just put it into terms, you can see clearly in one trial, half the mice survived more than six weeks after being infected with the Zika that were carrying the glio. And the uninfected mice carrying the glio died within two weeks of receiving the placebo. So I mean, granted, we're not destroying, melting these tumors away like some of these CAR-T immunotherapies, and you've got a long way to go, but the, I, the premise is proven. You've got the virus with the tropism, and I think it's just a matter of tuning up the virus while attenuating it so you can reduce the infectivity. Obviously, we won't want to you know, replace glioblastoma with Zika virus and have that be transmitted, but I think the idea is there. And if we tune it up, much like you know, HIV has been co-opted and tuned up, we can use this to deliver a payload to these cells, these cancer stem cells, either killing them directly or providing a tropism that allows like a little Trojan horse to kill them. So Rich and colleagues now are testing in mice whether combining Zika with chemo can be a better treatment. Um, and this is something that you know could make a big difference in a disease that has been very resistant to all kinds of treatment. We've talked about it a million times on this show alone. Yep. So. Zika being used for good. I think this is amazing. Going after those specific stem cells and being inspired by that similarity to how it affects the same neural progenitor cells in the developing brain. The interesting question, I think, additionally, is going to be adding mutations to the virus to make it less of an infectious agent so that no disease can actually be caused in an adult brain. Or, I mean, maybe if you're looking at glioblastoma in developing brains, how do you make sure that it doesn't go on and persist? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm still waiting for the other shoe to drop on Zika in adults. So let's wait for that. I predict it. You'll see a right. study next week. You've said it before. <laughs> like you said, you know, a lot of the existing therapies for, uh, you know, cancer, altering cancer cells or altering hematological malignancies and putting them back into patients, these lentiviral approaches, mm -hmm. lentiviral, it's attenuated HIV people. So yeah. I think you're right. The same thing is in the offing for Zika. We're going to lobotomize it and make it our own soldier. So ah, Zika soldiers. I love it. Yes. World I hope War it Z. works. Going to work. All right. Mark my mm -hmm. words. I'm predicting it. Wait two weeks.
All right. The other one is a story about Parkinson's disease, another scourge. Parkinson's disease, there's been a lot of focus on this as a kind of early platform for treatment with cell-based therapies. Famously, at least in recent years, the Parkinson's disease has been treated with fetal stem cells. So we know it's like a treatment that's amenable to cell-based therapies. But the last step before we can treat with, you know, cell therapy of any sort is confirmation that it works in like a non-human primate, a monkey model. And we're there. And the latest study, Jun Takahashi's lab, shows that monkeys with Parkinson's disease symptoms can improve significantly over two years after being transplanted with neurons prepared from human IPS cells, okay? This is a study in Nature in the last couple of weeks, and it's expected to be like pretty much the final step before IPS cell-based therapy is in play in early clinical trials in humans. So just a bit of background. We know Parkinson's disease degenerates a specific type of cells known as these dopaminergic neurons. And when the symptoms are first detected, the patient has already lost more than half of his or her dopaminergic neurons. So once you see it, it's already not too late, but it's already knee deep. And several studies have shown you can transplant these dopaminergic neurons, as I said, from fetal cells, and that can mitigate the disease symptoms in onset. But of course, use of fetal tissues is not always practical. It's controversial. It's limited because God knows not many fetuses out there, as there shouldn't be. But IPS cells, they can be made patient-specific and expanded to unlimited quantities. So Professor Takahashi is a neurosurgeon specializing in Parkinson's disease. His plan was to use these dopaminergic neurons made from IPS cells to treat patients. Okay, let's quote him. Our research has shown that DA neurons, that's dopaminergic neurons, made from IPS cells are just as good as dopaminergic neurons made from fetal midbrain. And that's a big deal. It is. Because... Fetal is, that's the bona fide, you know, that's the real deal. So getting that from IPS cells is a huge step to safe, test the safety and effectiveness of these dopaminergic neurons. So Hiru Kikuchi, who's a, another neurosurgeon, he works in Takashi's lab, he transplanted these cells into monkey brains. And it wasn't just a big batch. They made dopaminergic neurons from all kinds of different IPS cells, IPS cells from healthy donors, from Parkinson's patients, and they injected each monkey with its own IPS cell line. And they found that the quality of the donor cells had a big effect on whether or not these dopaminergic neurons survived and had a beneficial effect in terms of disease onset and symptoms. And so to understand why that difference existed, they drilled down. And I think this is where the mechanism, or not mechanism, but kind of basic underlying understanding that may be even a bigger deal than just the phenomenological result of monkeys improving symptoms. And that is they found that there was a link between this one gene DLK1 and the efficacy of the treatment. Another quote here, DLK1 is one of the predictive markers of cell quality for dopaminergic neurons made from embryonic stem cells and transplanted into rats. So there's a precedent for this. We found DLK1 and DA neurons transplanted to monkeys. We're investigating DLK1 to evaluate the quality of cells for clinical application. So it seems like we have a lead here. Not only do we have a way, or we have shown definitively that these cells can have clinical utility, perhaps, you know, crossing the final hurdle before clinical translation, but also we have a way of optimizing the cocktail, you know, optimizing the, the constituents within the cellular population that's transplanted to maximize the benefits. So I, I think this is a good study, no coincidence in nature. 
these things are coming hot and heavy. I feel like we're just five minutes away from a major cell therapy being approved, going into humans and actually working. Kiki, it's such an exciting time to be in stem cells. It really is. But I mean, I think what's really interesting here is the the fact that we're getting at this characterization of what cells are going to be the good cells. What are going to be the ones that we need to be transplanting? I mean, we already have issues with if you're coming from a donor, you're going to have to deal with rejection issues. And there's all these other, there are these factors that need to be taken into account. So if you can minimize the factors at play, make it the best possible situation. I mean, we still don't know with Parkinson's disease, you know, what's killing off the dopaminergic neurons in the first place. So if you take healthy cells and put them in there, you want them to survive for as long as possible. Right, right. And then there's the question, why is DLK? Why are the DLK DLK? positive cells better? Is DLK doing something? So there's a lot of maybe mechanistic, it's Mm -hmm. an onion, you know, they're peeling the onion. These guys are doing it. So cool. Blowing your brains out. Yeah. And is the DLK protective? And do people who have Parkinson's disease have a problem with their DLK? Oh, no, we should stake a position because, you know, if we say something is going to be true, it's going to be true. (laughs) Or That's that's the way it works. (laughs) Is it, huh? (laughs) Well, maybe not. Let's not let's not get too far with that. We're going to make asses of ourselves. Let's move on to someone who does know what they're talking about and can predict the outcomes of science in this world. Kiki, shall we? Oh, I think we shall. We've finished our roundup. But before we get into our interview, Stem Cell Technologies wants to remind you about one of their most popular products for stem cell research, M-Teaser. M-Teaser 1 is the most highly validated feeder-free maintenance medium for human embryonic stem cells and human-induced pluripotent stem cells that has been used in over 1,500 peer review publications. M-Teaser 1 is CGMP grade, manufactured under a CGMP quality management system and ensures the highest quality and consistency for reproducible results. And we all know science, you want it to be reproducible. This flexible maintenance medium supports multiple feeding and passaging timelines to suit your own schedule and can be combined with your cell culture matrix and passaging reagent of choice. M-Teaser 1 is the medium of choice for feeder-free human pluripotent stem cell genome editing using CRISPR-Cas9. You can learn more at www.stemcell.com slash M-T-E-S-R-1. That's M-T-E-S-R-1. So www.stemcell.com slash M-T-E-S-R-1. All right. The Stem Cell Podcast and Stem Cell Technologies are very pleased to welcome Kevin McCormick, Senior Director of Public Communications and Patient Advocate Outreach at the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine, CIRM. CIRM was created in 2004 after 59% of California voters approved California Proposition 71, that's the 2004 California Stem Cell Research and Cures Initiative, The passing of Proposition 71 established a 29-member Independent Citizens Oversight Committee, ICOC, that governs the allocation of the $3 billion authorized to fund stem cell research in California. The agency was authorized to distribute the money in grants funded by bonds over a 10-year period to institutions and scientists throughout California that focused on advancing stem cell research and regenerative medicine. The funding is set to expire this year, and we are grateful for Kevin for taking the time today to tell us about CIRM's progress and future. 
And we are grateful for Kevin for taking the time today to tell us about CIRM's progress and future. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking me. To get it started with the audience, can you give us a little bit bigger background about CIRM, the California Institute of Regenerative Medicine? Like, what is it? Why was it established in the first place? We were basically the state stem cell agency, and we began, I think, as a direct kind of counter to what happened in 2001, when then-President George W. Bush imposed some fairly strict funding limits on the use of embryonic stem cells in research. He limited the number of stem cell lines that could be used, and in theory, in the end, it ended up with something like about 19 stem cell lines that were actually usable in terms of research. And for a lot of the researchers, that was terribly frustrating. Embryonic stem cells at that time represented a tremendous hope, tremendous potential in terms of finding new treatments, new ways, not just of curing disease, but in terms of rewinding the clock in a sense, not just treating symptoms, but treating the very underlying causes and and regenerating disease tissues and organs. And in 2004, the voters of California were given an opportunity to say that in California, we want to do things differently. We want to support this research. We believe very much in the power of stem cells and the potential of stem cells. And so they supported Proposition 71, which gave CERM, created CERM, and then gave us $3 billion to help fund this research. And initially, it was supposed to be about $300 million a year over 10 years. But we found that we couldn't spend that much money that fast because it was very, the research was at a relatively basic level. And so we had to kind of portion the money out in the way that we thought made the most sense. And so, which is why several years after we were supposed to sunset, we're still working, we're still funding research. And in fact, we're still really very much advancing the research. So yeah, let's talk about that. We mentioned in the intro that funding is set to expire this year. That's not exactly right. As I talking to you separately, I think you kind of disabuse us of that. Is there a referendum this year or something? What's happening this year with CIRM? Are we way off on that? Could you give us an idea of the timeline, how the sunsetting of the funds are going to go? right now we have enough funding to fund new projects until 2020. And as these are multi-year projects, that means that the funding will continue for another two or three years after that. So we're in pretty good shape for about five or six years. In terms of a referendum, there has been talk about doing one, but I think realistically now that that's not likely to happen until probably uh, November of 2020. That's a presidential election year, and there's always a bigger turnout there. And I think the people behind this potential initiative it's a better opportunity to get more funding for, for CERN. That's not something that we as an agency have any role in. That's not something we do. That would have to be something done by an outside group. But obviously, anything that helps fund stem cell research and helps us keep advancing the research and, and bringing their uh, treatments to patients with our medical needs, that's something we obviously support. And so thinking about what you're supporting with the money, so this money came from this tax referendum. But what are the goals for what the money is supposed to do? The mission is pretty simple. It's to accelerate stem cell treatments to patients with unmedical needs. That's the goal. So everything we do has that goal in mind. And in the early years, initially, we had to kind of start at the very basic level, which was create some stem cell research laboratories so that people could do this research. The limits put on by the federal government meant that you couldn't use your stem cell research laboratory for anything involving embryonic stem cells. And so we had to create almost separate laboratories so these researchers could do that work. So we started doing that. We started funding very basic level research to kind of understand embryonic stem cells and other stem cells as well, to get a deeper knowledge of how to use them 
and what were the best things. And so over time, we've really helped advance that. Now we're at the point where a lot of that early research is beginning to move into the clinic, and we're funding 35 clinical trials already. We have a goal of funding another, say, 25 over the next few years. As we get older, we've been able to accelerate the pace at which we move promising ideas out of the lab and into people. And this is a really exciting time in many ways because we're beginning to see now, do these treatments work? Are they effective? Are they helping people? And in some cases, obviously, these aren't going to work. Not every experiment does. Not every clinical trial does. But in some cases, we're seeing some really interesting and some really encouraging or promising results. You mentioned that the major impetus behind this was the Bush era restrictions. And you just alluded to it as well. You're funding other stem cells, not just embryonic. So can you elaborate on that, especially when we talk about clinical translational stuff? I've seen that a lot of the grants, a lot of the funding that the CERM is going to is on adult stem cells or other type of treatments that are actually, as you said, in clinical trials and maybe people aren't so aware of because they're so focused on embryonic stem cells because they're so polarizing. Could you elaborate? on some of those adult stem cell trials and how close they are maybe to clinical translation? Yes, as you said, when we started, embryonic stem cells was the focus because that was the kind of the gold standard at the time. That was what most of the research was focusing on. Since then, research has gone off in many different directions and we've been able to learn how to use different kinds of stem cells for different therapies. For example, with uh, UCLA and a doctor there, Don Cohn, is working with gene-modified blood stem cells and one particular condition called SCID or severe combined immunodeficiency. That's uh, also known as bubble baby disease because children with this disease are born without a functioning immune system. And often within the first couple of years of life, they die. Based simple infections that most of us can fight off, they don't have that ability. So Don has developed this method whereby he takes blood stem cells from the child, genetically remodifies them to correct the problem returns them to the child. And as their blood stem cells, they create a new blood supply, a new blood system, and a repaired immune system. And he's already treated around 40 children with this, and four or five years out, they're still functionally cured. They're able to lead a normal life, don't have to have any extra protections or anything else like that. So we're seeing that there are lots of different ways of using stem cells. And part of the excitement of this is that embryonic stem cells are really still very important, but we're using lots of different cells in different ways. And we're finding that different diseases respond in different ways. And so there is no kind of one-size-fits-all approach. We are, as we say, agnostic about cell type. As long as it works, as long as it helps people, we don't care what it is. Yeah, so you don't have to necessarily be a separate institution for funding of embryonic stem cell research. Now you are a stem cell research accelerating institution, generally. Absolutely, yeah. And we began with the focus on embryonic stem cells. But even in Proposition 71, there, was, it, there were provisions to say that, you know, you fund the best research, the best things that are going to help people. And so that's what we've been doing, increasingly moving to using whatever cell type is available, whatever one looks the most promising, because that mission of ours of accelerating stem cell treatments to patients is based around just stem cells. We're, we don't care what the cell is, as long as it's hopeful, as long as it's potential, as long as it's showing some success, we're happy to keep funding it. So idea of like most practical, you're just trying to move the thing along. When the Prop 7 was approved, IPS cells obviously didn't exist. And the landscape has changed in large part. Do you think that there's an argument? I'm not making that argument, mind you. I say fund it, fund it, fund it. We have a similar thing in New York, the NISTEM, which is actually really important for moving 
projects forward that wouldn't really get the same attention from NIH. So I do believe in the mission, but I think there is an argument that who needs to allocate this huge amounts of money towards funding these embryonic stem cells when you have this iPS cell that's totally not controversial. Can you address that argument? Yes, absolutely. NYSTEM is a great organization. We've worked very closely with them over many years, and they have some great work. We're good partners. And I think, yes, iPS is very hopeful, it's very promising, but it's still very unknown. I mean, it's, it was only 2006 when we first learned about this, and we're still beginning to see this. So far, we've had one clinical trial using these iPS cells, and that was in Japan. They've done two patients so far. So it's promising. It holds a tremendous potential, but there's also a lot of questions that we need to ask. And right now, I don't know that patients with particular diseases want to wait around for a whole 10 years, for example, before we really feel comfortable working with this kind of cell. We're, we've, we're funding lots of work with iPS cells. We're doing some really interesting work in Parkinson's that we hope will one day lead to Parkinson's patients being able to use their own cells to treat themselves. But that's very much in the future. And so we also have to deal with what's now. And embryonic stem cells are really, they, they, they're the gold standard. We know an awful lot more about them than most other cells. They have tremendous potential to be turned into any other kind of cell, but without some of the consequences, the, uh, the kind of the genetic damage maybe that comes along with iPS cells from someone who's older. The idea is, we talk about multiple shots on goal. We will try anything to reach the target. So if we use embryonic stem cells, we'll use adult stem cells, we'll use iPS cells to attack all that you, different approaches to attack the same disease, because sooner or later, we'll find one that works. I mean, the analogy we use is the Chilean miners when they were trapped in that mine some years ago, 33 of them. The rescues knew they had to dig a tunnel, but they didn't know what method to use. They tried all three methods at once, rather than trying one, see if that worked, try the other if that didn't work. They were in a race against time. And in, in, the, in the CERN, we think we're in the time business. We don't have a lot of time to waste trying one thing, and if that doesn't work, come back and try another. We want to try as many different things as possible all at the same time, whether that's embryonic, adult, and IPS, because we figure sooner or later we're going to hit on the right one. And for patients, really, that's what matters. Yeah, I was having a conversation with someone recently about research and how if you have the funding, it allows you to try multiple parallel lines of inquiry simultaneously, which will let you get to the finish line faster, as opposed to trying each one independently and kind of waiting to see what works. And so that seems like it's a huge benefit of the way CIRM is set up. Absolutely. And one of the things we can do is de-risk some of this research, because I think when you're going to certain organizations, if you're going to venture capitalists, they're always looking for a return on their investment. And obviously, we would like to see a return on our investment as well. That's less important for us than seeing results seeing that this research advances, that it produces results. And even sometimes when it fails, and many of the projects we funded haven't done too well, we learn an awful lot. And that helps inform the next round of research, the next group that's working on these projects. We have a tremendous responsibility, but we also have a kind of a great freedom in a sense, in that we're not looking to shareholders and stockholders with an idea to repay that. We do have lots of provisions in our proposition and in the contracts we draw up with our researchers that if what we fund ultimately proves very successful and effective and profitable, then some of that profit comes back to the state of California to help repay those loans and those grants. But that's not our purpose for existing. Our purpose is, is to do all that we can to get those treatments to patients. Right, because the big payback is helping people. Absolutely. And in, a, and in a sense, the big payback from that is if you can treat something like diabetes that costs the state of California, billions of dollars, in the US, billions more. 
if you can develop a treatment for that that's really effective, think of the money you save and the return you get, not just in terms of reduced health care costs, but also improved quality of life and everything else that goes along with that. I'm thinking about uh, progress as we're talking about, and it's been 10 odd years now. Anecdotally, you know, you read the reporting about this whole climate thing that's going on, everything in the world right now, and the debates that are going on in the Hill. And it's interesting because there was one thing I heard in the reporting that 10 years ago, 2005, the debates there in Congress, people were standing up on both sides saying, hey, it's not happening. It's all this. It's a conspiracy. Who knows? But now there's just complete consensus. There's no debate, I think, except for a few crazy outliers. And CIRM is unique in that same way because it's very politically visible. Could you imagine or recall some examples from your time there where you can reflect on maybe things that were either there wasn't consensus on now that everybody's on board on now or things that we weren't aware of now that have really changed the landscape 10 years odd that changes the way that CERM is operating? Can you weigh in on that? Well, I think when we were being created, all the focus understandably was on embryonic stem cells. And so there was a heated debate about that, about the notion that this was uh, for people of religious faith, some of them, it, this was considered taking a life. And obviously they opposed it on those grounds. Other people had concerns about the idea that we were going to be using stem cells to create clones, perfect images of ourselves and stuff like that. To an extent, some of those arguments have fallen to the, to the wayside. But what's happened, interestingly, is that the field has matured as we use more and more of these adult stem cells and different kinds of cells to the point where people are looking beyond embryonic stem cells. For years now, there's been a conference at the Vatican on stem cells and stem cell research because they really support the idea. They've been like embryonic stem cells, of course. And so we were never invited. But last year, we were. Because I think with this new pope and also the fact that the science is evolving, we've reached the point where they say, okay, so we don't agree on every single thing, but on 99% of what we do of stem cell research, we do agree. And so let's put that 1% aside and focus on the things we do agree on. And I think it's that attitude. It's almost like a, the science has matured, has come of age. And so people can look beyond the things they disagree with and focus on the things that they agree with. It's amazing that it's happened in such a short period of time. It is. At least for us, it seems like short. But I think when you talk to patients, it's been a long time. Like we, yesterday, we had a patient advocate event, and one of the fellows there has a spinal cord injury. And he says, 20 years ago, his doctors were saying, don't worry, in a couple of years, we'll have something. And every year since then, a couple of years and a couple of years. And he says, when's it going to happen? Now, we do have a really promising clinical trial going on with a serious for spinal cord injury. But for so many people, they've been waiting and hearing about this for so long. So for us, it seems like it's really kind of moving along quickly. But for the patients who have to live with these conditions day in and day out, it's not moving fast enough. And particularly when you think about diseases like ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, where the average time life expectancy from diagnosis is between two and four years, they're in a race against time. So we need to match that sense of urgency. So where are we? I mean, I know you can't cover the whole panoply of studies that CERM is involved with, but could you give us a handful of those that are the furthest along? Where is there anything in like phase two fit clinical trials? Oh, we already have four clinical trials in phase three. We have about four or five in phase two as well. But even in the phase one, which is all about safety, we're seeing some really interesting results. There's a Dr. Henry Klassen, for example, at UC Irvine created a company called JSite, and they're working with a disease called retinitis pigmentosa, which is a quite rare disease, but it, it basically destroys vision, attacks the cones, light-sensing cones in the back of the eye. 
Henry Classen and his team have developed a therapy that helps replace and repair some of the damaged cones and restore some vision. And in the first group of about six patients, they saw some really interesting results. First of all, it all proved really safe, and that's important. Secondly, though, people began to see things. They began to see light in ways that they hadn't in years. One of the patients, Rosie Barrera, began to be able to see colors, began to be able to see shapes, identify things. She could read her handwriting, read notes she'd written years before but hadn't been able to kind of figure out. She was able to see the faces of her kids. Those things are really important. That's now in a phase two clinical trial, and that's looking really promising. So we're, we're quite hopeful about that. There's an Asterius, who I just mentioned, about spinal cord injury. And they're doing a treatment using embryonic stem cells that have been converted into the kinds of cells that are damaged in a spinal cord injury. That, and the hope is that this will create a kind of a bridge across the injury, connecting the brain and the body. And with a number of patients, we've already seen really encouraging results, again, in a phase one trial, where in the beginning, they were paralyzed from the chest down. And after treatment, they've been able to regain use of their arms and to an extent, their hands. It's not being able to walk again, but for these patients, it gives them a chance of a sense of independence. They'll be able to lead an independent life. And that's a huge deal. And again, I'm, earlier, I mentioned Don Cohen and his work with SCID, where they're helping repair these damaged immune systems. They've cured 40 kids. And we're working on a couple of other clinical trials with that same approach. So that's really promising. And if it works with SCID, just by genetically re-engineering blood stem cells to repair the damaged uh, gene, then we're going to try that now. We're also trying that with sickle cell disease that affects around 100,000 Americans, mostly African-Americans. And we're also working with three clinical trials, trying the same thing with HIV AIDS. Because if you can take a blood stem cell, genetically re-engineer it so that it can't be, so that it's, it's resistant to the AIDS virus, and you create a new blood supply, a new blood system, as well as boosting the immune system. Theoretically, you could functionally cure HIV AIDS, which is an extraordinary thing to even think about, let alone try and do. I was sitting here getting goosebumps because this all sounds amazing. You mentioned earlier that there have also been failures, and we know science moves forward because of the failures. What are the failures that have happened that have really taught CIRM lessons? Failures have happened on two sides. One is the science hasn't worked out. For example, with one of the companies we worked with, uh, Stem Cells Inc., they were working on treatment for Alzheimer's, and that just wasn't working. We didn't see any really good results, good effects in their kind of preliminary studies. Other trials where we've seen some really promising results, but those were canceled because of business reasons, because a new CEO took over or because new owners decided they wanted to go in a different direction. So even sometimes when the science is working out, the economics don't work out. One of our clinical trials canceled because they found that by the time they got approval to do the next phase clinical trial, the market had changed. Two new drugs had come on that really made what they were doing economically unfeasible. And so there's a whole range of things that we have to deal with here. Science is just one of them, but also the finances of all of this. Every time we fund a project, we know that it has potential, but there's also it may fail. And we've seen a number of those fall by the wayside. But often what will happen is that they realize that they've seen an effect, they've seen something working, but it's not big enough. And so then they have to go back to the drawing board and figure out, okay, how do we amplify that? How do we make that bigger so that we can actually say this is working? So do you think that like politically in terms of how it's been dealt with or administratively, I know there's been some shuffling in the administrative aspects of the CIRM. I imagine that's a problem. Is it this, the integration of government and science administration? Is it too much money? Can you kind of talk about how there were maybe some growing pains on the administrative level or government level with CERN? 
And we were a unique organization on many levels. I mean, we're, we're a state agency, but in some ways we're separate from the state because we have a great deal of independence. We're a scientific agency, but we fund the science and so The way we were set up with our 29-member board is that notion of the, all the major institutions in California have a say in how things are done. But at the same time, those institutions, you could argue, have a kind of a vested interest in getting funding for this work. So we devised very elaborate conflict of interest rules to ensure that that didn't happen. And there's never been a case where any funding decision was made that involved any conflict of interest. But we ran into problems that it was that sense of perception that people might look at where the money is going to at Stanford, at UCLA, at UC San Diego, and saying, well, you have, they have representatives on the board, so obviously they're gaming the system. There was never any evidence of that, never any indication from our perspective that that was the case. But still, it's that sense of perception. So what we did was we changed it. So we meant that any institution that has, say, stem cell research funding, they can't vote on any funding issues. We took that completely out of the picture. So there was only about 13 members of the board then who had this ability to vote. And they were all independent as much as you can be. I think someone criticized us saying, well, you have these patient advocates on there. Aren't they biased because they've had a disease or because they're representing a disease? And the argument is fallacious in the sense that we all know someone who has cancer, who's had heart disease, who's had a stroke, who has all sorts of different things. We all have a stake in this. So you can't take the personal, the human out of this. But we've done as much as we can possibly to take all those sense of that perception that there's something bad going on here to make it clear that what we're doing is all about funding the best research, funding the best science. And one of the most important things that we have is what we call our grants working group. And this is a panel of independent experts all of whom are outside California. Some of them are all over the world. And every time we get applications, we have a meeting of this group and they look at the science. They look purely at the science. They don't care about where it is or who's doing it. They look at the science. Is this good science? Does it make sense? Is there a rationale for how this is going to work? Is the team that's proposing it, are they good? Can they do this work? Does the budget make sense? Because we're very careful not to give people money to do stuff they can't do. So they make recommendations about how we fund and whether we fund it. The ultimate decision goes to the board. But then we do something else, which is quite unique in a way. If you get funding from any other organizations, they'll just say, OK, great, you've got a million dollars. Here's the million. Let us know what happens. We say, OK, great, we're going to give you five million dollars. Here's a million. Here are your milestones. You get to this first milestone, we'll give you another million. Get to the second, we'll give you another million. And the idea is that we fund research that's working. If it's not working, we're not going to fund it. And we've stopped a number of projects halfway because they just weren't getting the results they needed. They weren't able to do the work. And so that money is then saved and then put back into the pot that we can fund other work that is working. And hopefully it'll keep working. I mean, this funding, is it essential now for stem cell research? Is this a real, is CIRM and also equally NYSTEM? Are these institutions that are publicly funded are they an essential part of the funding ecosystem to keep stem cell research on track at this point? I think so. I think so. What's happened over the last year, I think, is an example where there's been a lot of funding cuts at the NIH and threats of bigger cuts. And so for, for researchers, that has been in the past kind of the main source of funding, the main source of support. When that's drying up, when there's less of that available, they need other sources. And so NYSTEM is a great way of doing that. And CERM as well. And what we can do is we can fund these kind of early stage research projects that might not otherwise be funded. We can take a look at something and say, this is maybe a high risk, but it's a high reward. Fund those things. But also what happens now is that venture capitalists, big pharma, they're still waiting to see about stem cell research, what the potential is there. They recognize this potential. 
They're waiting to see where they put their money because they want to make a return on it. We don't have to worry about that. So what we can do is fund research through the first phase one and phase two clinical trials, what they call the valley of death, where you need money to get through that, but there's no money available. And so we fund those things. The idea is that we'll fund it through phases one and two. And then as if the results start to show they're really encouraging and effective, then some of the bigger companies will come in. And we're seeing that with some of our projects where as they begin to progress through the clinical trials and show success, bigger partners are coming in and investing, say, $100 million, or they'll give them, say, $20 million now and say, if the results from this phase are really good, we'll come in with $100 million or maybe $300 million. So it's that idea. We get them to the point where they can partner with one of the big boys and the deep-pocketed companies, and they can then carry them over the finish line and get them through that last section. But yeah, absolutely. Organizations like us are essential to keep funding this pipeline, to keep the kind of the basic research going, and then to move it through those stages and the translational stage, to move it from the bench into the bedside and into the clinical trials. You mentioned just one thing. I was wondering, as you mentioned, that the synergy with local R&D there, you know, the Silicon Valley is a lot of biotech. <laughs> Do you think, and one of the arguments for Prop 71 also was that it was going to attract a lot of talent. Do you have any metrics on whether or not the, the pool of academics, innovators at large in California has been increased? Is there more NIH grant support going to the California institutes than there were 10 years ago? Do you have any statistics about that? Yeah, a couple of years ago, we actually did a survey of our grantees to see you know, what kind of impact we were having. And I and uh, this was about two, three years ago. And we found at that point that at least 300 leading researchers and their teams had moved to California because of that. They're opening labs here. They're starting companies here. Companies are moving to California because they want to have access to our funding because we only fund research that's based in California. We also found out that there was around half a billion dollars in follow-on funding based on our work. So we were able to fund some research. They could then go to other institutions, the NIH and different organizations, and get funding based on findings that they got from our work. So that half a billion dollars, and it, that's probably quite a, a conservative amount, is due to the work that we did. We just keep trying to push the, the boundaries. And so now we talk about, although we can only fund research in California, we recently funded a clinical trial, a phase three clinical trial in ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease with a company that's based in Israel. And the reason we can do that is that although manufacturing is going to be done here in California and three of the clinical trial sites are here in California. So we'll fund all the manufacturing costs and we'll fund the trial sites you know, that are here in California. So we're bringing treatments to patients here in California that otherwise would never have happened. We're bringing companies from all over the world to California because this is where the funding is and this is where they see a great opportunity to be able to advance the science. So it's an economic generator. It's bringing in talent, companies, money, manufacturing, the entire industrial pipeline, really. It sounds wonderful. What we're trying to do is create this infrastructure. We recently created what we call a stem cell center with a company called Quintiles IMS, which is one of the biggest clinical research organizations in the world. And what we do with them is we help fund, when we fund a project that's not quite ready for the clinic, they go to Quintiles and help get a sense of what's involved. Because academic researchers are brilliant on many levels, but if they've never started a company, if they've never dealt with the FDA, if they've never designed a clinical trial, these are all really kind of complicated things and skills that they don't necessarily have. By partnering them with Quintiles, who has that experience, they know how to talk to the FDA and prepare an application for a clinical trial. They know how to design a clinical trial. 
what we wanted to do was kind of let the researchers do the things that they do best. Let them do the research, do the science, and give them the other supporting things that they need to get the rest of the way, to get into the clinic. And the idea is that when we fund something, we don't just give money. We want to be able to give support and give everyone as much information and the best tools possible to succeed at what they do. I'll tell you, man, I'm coming to California. You guys, <laughs> it's pretty nice over there. And you got the science, so it's a wrap. See you in a minute. <laughs> the whole package. No, I mean, we feel really incredibly fortunate in the trust that the people of California have placed in us and the money that they've given us to be able to do this, to advance this research, to create this possibility here in California. We've also created an Alpha Clinic Network, which is a network of clinics that specialize in delivering stem cell therapies, because these are brand new. These have, in many cases, these clinical trials, they've never been tested in people before. So you need a whole new way of doing it, not just in terms of delivering the therapies, but even in talking to patients about what they're getting into, explaining to them the science, explaining to them what's going to happen. And the fact that we're then going to be doing follow-up, not just for like six months or a year, but 10 years, because we want to see what happens with these therapies long-term to make sure that nothing bad has happened and to make sure that if something looks cured, that it stays that way. We're creating these clinics because then they can share the, the kind of the best practices. They can say for the nursing staff, these are the things that you need to do with this new therapies. For the people who are even doing consent to patients, these are the things you need to explain. We're using new tools. We're using iPads to help explain things because people visually learn better and understand these things better. With the physicians, how do you deliver the medicine? How do you talk to the patients about all this? And then the follow-up. So we're creating these networks where they work together, they share best practices. And if a clinic in, say, UC Irvine or UCLA has approval to do one clinical trial, we can then take that same approval and move it to, say, San Diego, to UC San Diego there. So patients in San Diego don't have to travel to LA to get that same therapy. We're trying to make it as easy for the patients as possible and as efficient for the medical teams as possible. And so where is it going to go from here? What is the next step? You say you've got funding through to be able to fund research until early to 2020s. You'll be asking the state, the citizens of the state again for a renewal of funding and trying to move forward. Is that the next step? Is that where you're headed next? Well, we don't have any control over that. If a ballot initiative gets put on the ballot, then that will be by another group separate group. There's a group called Americans for Cures that's headed by Bob Klein. And Bob was one of the founders. He's really the kind of the father of Proposition 71. So they're already looking at doing a ballot initiative in 2020. That's something that we have no control over. So right now, our focus is on just doing what we do best. We have a strategic plan with some pretty ambitious goals, including when we passed it, 50 new clinical trials in five years. We're halfway there. We're doing partnering. We wanted to kind of change the regulatory environment at the FDA to make it easier, but you know, more efficient system to approve stem cell therapies. That's happening with the 21st Century Cures Act. So we have a lot of things that we're working on. And so our goal, our focus right now is on our strategic plan and just living up to that and keeping moving the science forward. And we think if we do a good job on that, if we can show the people of California that what we're doing is effective, that it's paying off, that we're getting these projects, not just in the clinical trials, but that they're working, they're curing people, they're saving lives, and they're changing lives, then I think that that will be proof enough that their investment was a wise one, and maybe they'll be willing to reconsider in doing it again. You guys are uh, the point of the spear. I just really hope that we can get these stories out. I mean, listening to you tell these individual stories of uh, people, you know, it's not always the flashy cures, but just giving them 
a little improved quality of life, a little more functionality and hope and seeing that they can get better. I think that is the greatest inspiration for all the other patients, all the citizens of California and the world to look towards. So, I mean, we really, thanks for coming on. And I know it's not you in the lab, but you know a lot of stuff about what these guys are doing. You got to get your voice heard, my man. You're doing amazing work in there. Thank you. Yes, I feel really fortunate to have this job. I mean, one of the hardest things about my job is I get phone calls and emails every day from people all over the world saying, I have this particular disease or condition. Can you help me? And for the first number of years I was here, I was having to say, I'm sorry, we're working on these things, but we don't have anything. And now it's so gratifying to be able to say to someone, we do have a clinical trial and here's how you can find out if you can be part of that. And just talk to other people about this research is getting ready. We're going to be in a clinical trial, we hope, within the next six months. So there's that sense of like the dial is moving and it's moving in a positive direction. And what we're focused on here is keeping it moving in that way so that we can do everything we can for as many different diseases as possible to help them. It's so exciting. Maybe one day, instead of everybody knowing someone who's had cancer, maybe everyone will know somebody who's had a stem cell cure. Absolutely. That's something we look forward to. I mean, we talk about we have the potential and we're in part of this movement now that's changing the face of medicine. In 10, 15 years time, we may look back at some of the things that we were doing and saying, why did we ever treat stuff like that? When you have the potential, not just to kind of treat the symptoms, but to turn back the clock, to regenerate damaged tissues, to regrow organs even. I mean, there's a lot of research that's going on in that area that isn't, we're not able to replace organs yet, but we're learning so much from what we can do that this is just astonishing. This is a really exciting time. Agreed. Thank you so much for joining us today. This has just been a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. All right, Kiki, we got some nice, nice tidbits there from uh, Kevin McCormack. He's telling us all about CIRM, the future, the history, the boundless potential that was unleashed with that one small proposition. 59% of the vote. What do you think of that? If we did that again, what do you think? How many, what percentage of Californians do you think would vote for that now, more or less? Well, I hope that people will have seen the potential of stem cell research over the last more than 10 years at this point, and that they might, and, and maybe they know people who have been affected by stem cell research and therapies, there would be more people who would support it, especially now that we have so much promise from iPSCs as opposed to embryonic. Right, right. We forget that back when CERM came up, you know, no one even had an idea that we were going to be able, in a mere two, three years, be able to get these induced pluripotent correlates. So you wonder, does that make the mission of CERM any less important? No. In fact, I think it makes it more nimble and it freed up a lot more funding for research that wasn't bogged down with the bioethical controversy. So it's a really cool thing. I think CERM gives you a real insight into the entire evolution of the geopolitical implications and you know convulsions surrounding stem cells. So great, a great subject for our hundredth show. Absolutely. Maybe somewhere in the next few shows, though, we'll have to try and find someone from the FDA to talk about all the stem cell therapy regulation. That's good. Maybe. Let's see if we can do that. Let's see. Let's see. Not going to hold my breath. FDA, I feel like they're not allowed <laughs> to say anything about anything, right? It's like the, the, the FBI. Okay. But at this point, let's close this show down. Let's finish our century up with a good old stem cell podcast rant. This rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us. And 
most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today? Who even wants to be a hundred years old? Is there anybody? I mean, you always say, oh, I want to live to be a hundred years old, but have you thought about it? It's a terrible idea. Have you looked at a hundred year old lately? Yeah. I mean, sometimes I wonder, sometimes I think, man, how neat to have been around a hundred years and have seen the evolution of things, technologies for a hundred years. But I just, then sometimes I'm like, man, it must be so tiring to have seen the same things happen over and over again because nobody learns from their mistakes. Yeah. Oh, the same <laughs> mistakes, history repeating. But it also, I mean, when you hear an older person, I mean, I mean, much older, Anything that has genarian attached to it, you know, you never talk about a genarian unless they're over at least 70. When they talk about the technology, they seem pissed off. I don't think they're like, oh, it's so cool. These phones are so cool. They're banging on them and angry. So it's so hard to use. They're miserable. I'm telling you, Kiki, I want to live to a nice 80. Okay. And then I want you to take me out. (laughs) Yeah. And then there's the, you know, people who are working to try and live longer like right now unless you are genetically you have that predisposition to make it to 100 which you never know we don't know who has those genes and who doesn't that's just a crapshoot at this point you know so people are like oh i'm gonna try and live that long so i'm not gonna eat anything because caloric restriction and i'm not going i'm going to take this basket full of vitamins and supplements (laughs) i mean And I'm going to have to live my life in this way that, oh, is that really making you happy? Like That's all your neighbors, isn't it? Be honest. That's all your neighbors in Portland. If if I'm going to live that long, I want to do it in a happy way where I am fulfilled and happy every day. I don't want to limit my life and the way that I live it. Like I want to have a nice meal with lots of calories in it sometimes. I want to enjoy that glass of wine. You know that caloric restriction on his deathbed at 98 is thinking, I should have had a cheeseburger. You know it. Right? You didn't make it to 100. You're at 98. You should have eaten the cheeseburger. (laughs) Exactly, sucker. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, I am okay with this show making it to 100 episodes. Yes, yes. 100 episodes, that's a whole different story. Okay, and maybe we can go for a few more. Let's try for 100 more, everybody. But be sure send us your rant ideas. Because if we are going to do 100 more episodes of this podcast, we need some more rants and we need your ideas. I ran all out of pissed off. I'm running out. (laughs) I don't know, man. I've kind of come up from my optimism all the time to be a little (laughs) bit more angry with you. (laughs) Guys, we need to restore the balance in the universe. Yes. Help us restore this ranty balance. Send us your ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or email info at stemcellpodcast.com. Don't forget also to take our survey at stemcellpodcast.com. Dalen, this concludes episode 100, the end of our first century of the first of the Stem Cell Podcast. Everyone be sure to tune in for our next episode. Goodbye, y'all. Thank you.